0: We praise You that that cry took us into account, that He did that in the place of sinners, in the place of His people. And we rejoice in the finished work of our Savior, praying that we would understand it better as we look to the Word today and asking again for those who know not Christ. Draw to Yourself those who need Him as Savior. Lord, we all do. And we pray that you draw us as your people to understand your truth and that the church would continue to rejoice in the finished work of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Make your way to Hebrews, the end of chapter 2, Hebrews 2. We've probably all heard that common sarcastic rebuke when one person asks too much of another person. Well, I'm not God, you know. The sarcasm works because it's based on an obvious conclusion. We are not God. We are not creator and sustainer of the universe. We are not all-present, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful. So when someone says, I'm not God, the sarcasm works because it rests on metaphysical reality. The discipline of metaphysics includes investigation of the nature of being. Simply said, what is something? What is its essential nature? We need no philosophy degree to draw the metaphysical conclusion that God and man have distinct natures. That is evident to us from a very young age. This intuitive, metaphysical conclusion, this obvious reality, fuels the struggles that we have to rightly identify Jesus of Nazareth. The Bible troubles our intuitive belief that God and man have distinct natures, and that these natures do not mix. You cannot mix the nature of a rock and a horse, or the nature of anger with a jelly bean. And the distinctions between God and man are even greater than these. So when we encounter texts that seem to apply both natures to Jesus, the nature of God and the nature of man, many theologians through the centuries have tried to help God out by explaining around the supposed contradiction. Some sidestep texts that ascribe a divine nature to Jesus, insisting that he was only a man. He had only a human nature. Others claim that Christ's body was not actually real. It just looked real. He was like a phantom. Others have insisted through the years that Jesus was actually two separate persons. There was a divine person, And there was a human person that stood out in front, and they were both actually there all the time. One a divine person, one a human person. Others propose that Jesus' nature is a little different from that of the Father, since Jesus was a created God. I think a contradiction in terms right away, but a created God. Such people may knock at your door someday. Yet others argue that Jesus had a human body, but was given a divine mind. So he's kind of a split being, partly God, partly man. It just keeps going. Others claim that Jesus surrendered his deity to become man, shedding the divine nature like a coat. I guess temporarily. All of these schemes are proposed in order to save the Bible from itself. This just cannot be reality. And so we'll come up with an idea that makes the Bible work. We devise a way to sort of fix the riddle. And we supply that to those who will follow in here. And there's many of these schemes. Many of these schemes... That Christians have embraced, those who claim to follow Christ to embrace these ideas to try to fix what the Bible says. These schemes are devised in the brains of men to make sense of matters, but scriptures claim that God's thoughts are not our thoughts does not mean that God is illogical or irrational. But scriptures claim that God's thoughts are not our thoughts does mean that he does not need our help. He doesn't need a scheme from man to fix what he has revealed about the Son. What we need to do is submit to what God reveals in His word, even when it fairly explodes our minds to do so. And so that brings us back today yet again to the question, who is Jesus Christ? Chapter 1 trumpets the truth that Jesus is God, very God. He's presented in chapter 1 of Hebrews as the creator, sustainer, and reigning king of the universe. As the only begotten eternal son who does everything that the Father does. By nature, Jesus is God. We would draw no other conclusion from chapter 1 if we just read it. If we take it as as it is. Then we come to chapter 2, which stresses Jesus' solidarity with his people. A solidarity displayed when Christ became lower than the angels. That solves probably half of those schemes of explaining who Jesus is right there. He did not take on the flesh of angels, but he became lower than angels to take on human flesh, to die in the place of his people. So by nature, Jesus is man, according to chapter 2. We see the solidarity that is emphasized as we think back on last week in verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers, the, the idea of brothers there, Old Testament Prophetic texts linking Messiah with his brothers, with those who follow him as his disciples. And then in verse 13, Behold I and the children that God has given me. There's a strong emphasis here from the Old Testament of the solidarity of Jesus with his people. This man with these people. That solidarity stress. We come now to verses 14 and following, which form a summary statement That stresses again the humanity of Christ. This truth, let me say again, is vital to our salvation. The deity of Christ is vital to our salvation, but so is the humanity of Christ it is vital it is an essential piece of it and we look at that doctrine here again today first of all noting in the broad perspective i'm thinking here the global sense or the cosmic sense a broad conversation jesus became a man in order to deliver his people from death why this eternal son who is god very god chapter one became a man it is for this reason in order to deliver his people from death. Notice verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Since therefore is just providing now a summation of chapter 2. This is kind of a almost a poetic way of saying something that's very simple. It's a little bit confusing. The author is very capable as a writer, and he's saying this in a a somewhat poetic way. Let's just, just take that verse by itself and break it down a bit. Since therefore the children. Who are the children? These are the people referred to there in verse 13. The solidarity of Jesus with his people. Since his people share flesh and blood. That is, People have flesh and blood. They're people. He himself partook of the same things. He himself partook of flesh and blood. So the people he came to save, human beings, necessitated that he would take on flesh to save them. That's a simple idea here. The statement is very specific. And we do not need to help God out by saying Jesus only looked like a man. It is said poetically here, it is said with some flowery language, but it says that Jesus shared in flesh and blood. Or literally, blood and flesh, but we take it in that way as a figure of speech. In flesh and blood, he took on humanity. Now why did he do it? Verse 14, you notice the word that in the middle in the ESV translation. Since he came to save people, flesh and blood, he then took on flesh and blood, and why did he do it? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Christ defeated death by submitting to it for us. So the wages of sin is death, to pay that cost, the son had to die, and in order to die, he had to become a man. That's the logic here of the incarnation. Only by becoming man can he save man from the death that man deserves by his sin. Now we might ask here, at the end of verse 14, does Satan wield sovereign control over death? When people die, how people die, it might be taken that way, to destroy the one who had who has the power of death. No, of course, God alone is sovereign over death. God himself established death as the punishment for sin, and it is he who cursed Adam and Eve with that punishment as they sinned against him. So death is not Satan's victory dance. Death is God's rod of punishment. But Satan does have power over death in the sense that he lures people into it. Maybe we could say he lures people over the precipice of death. In their beliefs, their attitudes, their goals, their actions, in matters of money and relationships and sex and chemical abuse and goals and ambitions and self-love and the like. Satan just says, come this way in the dark. Come this way, you blind person. Come, follow me, follow me, and leads them right over the cliff of death. That's the sense in which Satan wields death. He incites people to live as they please. This is what he wants us to do. Do what you want to do. And the end result is spiritual death, which culminates in physical death and ultimately in God's final judgment of sinners. But what we learn here, the glorious truth, is that Jesus walks into Satan's lair He suffers the penalty of sin by dying in the stead of sinners. And he rises again in victory. He took on flesh, verse 14, that through death, that by laying down his physical life, he might destroy Satan, who has the power of death. Now, the word destroy here means render inoperative, not evaporate, as if he's gone. Uh, but destroy in the sense of death still prevailing over us physically, but now the war is won. Christ is victor. As Guthrie says, As our champion, Christ has stormed the very gates of the enemy, laid hold of his stronghold, opening wide the doors of our captivity and pointing us to the path of freedom. This is our joy in Christ. And that points us to the next verse that expands on the effect of Christ's bodily death. It served, verse 15, to deliver all those who through through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he enters into death to defeat Satan, to defeat death, and to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. On one hand, we would say... Not every human being quakes with terror over the thought of death. And on the other hand, even God's people can be terrified when facing a harrowing death. Those qualifiers establish people separated from God are generally terrified by death, or they should be. Life separated from the resurrection power of Jesus is like walking across a tightrope stretched across a massive crater filled with molten lava. You should be afraid of death. If you do not know Christ, the victor over death, fear is the only right response to death. Maybe some going across the tightrope are blindfolded and are just ignorant of the danger that is theirs. But in any event, that fear is pervasive. We live in a world that is scared to death of death. 1735, John and Charles Wesley, it's the Wesley's day apparently here. But they left England for the southern coast of the American colonies to spread the gospel in Georgia. It did not go well. It didn't go very well on a lot of levels, but the probably primary one, the primary one, was the fact that They were not converted. So they were sharing the gospel with people. They themselves were not sure that they were believers. And they really thought a lot about this on their return, I was going to say flight, uh, (laughs) on the ship home. Uh, They thought about this a lot. And there was a storm at sea, and they were pretty convinced, everyone on the ship, that it was going down. They weren't going to make it back to England. It was a terrible storm. And the Wesley brothers, John particularly, writes of seeing there on the deck of the ship some Moravian believers who were at peace. This storm is raging, the ship is going down, and they're at peace. They're prayerful, they're talking, they're supporting each other, but there's no fear in these people. And he looked at that and said, I don't have that. He wrote later, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who, what, is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself, while no danger is near. But let death look me in the face, and my spirit is troubled. And I think this is the key of it all. Nor can I say, to die is gain. I can't say that. This is He's speaking for himself as an unbeliever. So impressed were the Wesleys with the testimony of these fearless Moravians that they found some as they returned to England. And three days apart in May of 1738, both men were converted, born again by the Holy Spirit. They never forgot those believers in that raging Atlantic. They saw it. They saw the face of it. Christ delivers His people from the fear of death. This fear of death is a debilitating horror that overshadows the life of the unbeliever. It taints every aspect of it. The fear of losing control, the fear of aborted dreams forever lost, the fear of the unknown, the fear of that utter and absolute loneliness, the fear of losing everything. That fear has been destroyed by our Savior. We now have no fear of death because He has defeated it and given to us His life. Born again believer in Jesus Christ, we can say with joy and assurance that death is gain. We can sing to God, it is not death to die. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears. And wake in joy before God's throne delivered from our fears. It is not death to die. It is gain to die. Jesus did that for us. He paid the eternal cost of sin, and as man he paid the physical cost of our sin. Verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Angels linking back, of course, to the theme of chapter 1. The meaning of this verse is widely debated because the meaning of the word help has such a wide range. The basic meaning of help, translated here, is to take hold of. And it was used then figuratively sometimes of taking hold of in order to help. But the word can mean take hold of in any sense. And so many have read this. In fact, it was the ancient interpretation for a long time, really until the Reformation, as I understand. But surely, if not angels, that he takes hold of. The idea being, he did not take on angel identity. But he took on the flesh of the offspring of Abraham. It might be that specific that he became a Jewish man, Not an angel, but however we translate the idea, the interpretation that Christ came to the aid of his people, it could be of Abraham's offspring, he just came to help, or it could be literally the offspring of Abraham as he took on flesh. But in any event, the point is clear. Jesus came to the aid of sinners by becoming a man. This cosmic truth, this broader perspective is now matched in verses 17 and 18 by the narrow perspective. Why the eternal Son became a man? Jesus became a man in order to live, deliver his people from sin. He delivers us from death in defeating Satan and defeating death. But now in the narrower sense, in the closer to home sense, Jesus died in order to de- deliver us from sin. And that's an ongoing process in our daily lives, as well as an eternal concept. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 17 looks backward And it points very directly to his solidarity with us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to. That is, it was necessitated by the fact that the people he was coming to save are people. They are under the judgment of God to pay physically for their sin with eternal death. So Christ had to take on flesh in the incarnation that he might be be like his brothers in every respect. Brothers, again, linking back to verse 12 in this solidarity with his people so that to be like them, it destroys the view then that Jesus was not a true man. He is taking on flesh to be like them in every respect. Why did he become man? Verse 17, you see the so that. Again, the implication, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That's why he took on flesh. The people here, probably the people of faith like Abraham, he becomes for them a high priest. The concept of high priesthood is not developed here. It's almost introduced here like a teaser of what is to come. But he leaves that idea alone for now. But a high priest mediates between God and man and does so as a man. That's the whole idea of priesthood, is that it's a man who stands between God and man. One who represents, who serves the purpose of God to deliver his people from sin. And so again, in order to become a sin bearer, Jesus had to assume the nature of those who sinned. Now wait a minute, that where do we how do we take that? I thought we were sinners by nature. So if he assumes our nature, doesn't that mean Jesus is a sinner? Well, no. After the fall, it is true that it is our nature to sin now. But when God created Adam and Eve, he did not create them as sinners. Sin is, in fact, an intrusion into the plan of God. It is against who we truly are, who we, who we were made to be. And so by taking on flesh does not mean that Jesus takes on sin. That is true of us. It is not true of him. Back to the point, Jesus can represent us as a high priest because he became a man. And in this, I think, we need not simply think of the doctrine but rejoice in the reality. Let us here pause to worship. Jesus serves God's gracious purpose to forgive the sins of his people. This is the bent of God toward us. He cannot overlook sin because he is holy and just, and yet God loves to wash away the guilt of sinners. The only reason that we're here today, it's the reason that we can rejoice, is because God lives to wash away the sins. Of his people. Specifically this happens as Jesus achieves propitiation for the sins of His people. Propitiation is not a word you're likely to use in conversation with your backyard neighbor. It's not a word you're going to throw about at the grocery store as you're checking out, right? Propitiation, no one is going to know what that means. We should know what it means. This is one of those beautiful terms of our salvation that is so essential. And I'm glad some translations fail this point and don't use the word propitiation. We need to learn what it means. Propitiation is God's anger. There's two ideas. God is angry with sin because of his holiness and his justice. And that anger is satisfied by propitiation. It is propitiated. It is satisfied. Let me take a silly illustration, but if, if uh, my car was out there in the parking lot some weekday as I'm studying in the office and I see a guy walking across the parking lot and I say, that's kind of strange, he's got a big cement block in his hand. What's he doing with that? He walks up to my car and he throws it right through the windshield. And then he brings it out and starts smacking the car, and other, breaking other glass and denting the side of the car and beating it and, and with this block there would be a kind of anger that would be justified on my part. You can't do that. That's my property. What are You, you can't do that. There'd be a, a type of anger that would rightly be there. It could be a wrong kind of anger, too. But a right kind of anger that says, this is unjust. This is breaking the law. This is destroying property. But if that young man's parents came running across the parking lot as I'm going out to confront him and said, we're so sorry for what our son has done here. We'd, we'd really like to buy you a brand new Lexus. Well, my anger would be satisfied real quickly. In fact, I'd say, could I bring a couple of my other cars here? <laughs> Have your son look at those, right? It's a silly story, but it, it helps us picture propitiation. I'm rightly angered. Well, I'm not so angry anymore. I'm not angry. This is a wonderful turn of events. Just to get the sense of the emotion of it, God's anger against sin is real and it's legitimate. It is an anger that runs deeper than anything we can conceive. And we live in a culture and a time that hates the idea. For God to be an angry God is deeply offensive. But what we must understand is that God cannot be anything else but angry with sin. He must judge it. It is in His nature to judge it. He is holy to the core of His being. And so He hates sin. Like we would hate the rotting flesh of a rat in our basement get it out of here. But Christ's sacrifice satisfied that anger. It did something so great and beyond that it took the anger away. Christ's sacrifice paid the full cost of sin, and His sacrifice was also real and legitimate. So Jesus stood between me and the sinner, and God, the holy judge, and God's anger resting upon my head, coming down upon me, Jesus satisfies that anger by saying, I will step in, and I will take his place, and I will pay that sinner's debt with my life. And God's anger is as calm as the sea that Jesus calmed. In our interest. Philip Hughes says it so nicely, our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours. Never was there such mercy, never such faithfulness as this. A high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Here now, in the narrow sense, down here closer to home, is our high priest standing in for us and taking our place on the cross. What this means on a very practical level as we move forward, verse 18 For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, we're down here on the carpet, we're here close to home. He Himself has suffered when tempted. That is, in His humanity, in His death specifically, Jesus suffered the trials of temptation. Temptations we will never understand. He was not only willing to suffer, He did suffer on our account. And How do we understand this? Jesus with a divine nature and free of sin, how is Jesus tempted? We know that God cannot be tempted with sin. But taking on humanity, here's the key, taking on a body, Jesus faced temptation as a man, yet without sin. Chapter 4, verse 15, will make that explicit. But then someone could say, but if he did not sin, then how can he understand me and my sin? I need someone who sins like me to understand my sin. Not true. And it's just faulty thinking on our part. We cave into it all the time. But by not sinning, Jesus faced the full force of sin. We cave into our besetting sins well before they hit their ultimate depths. Jesus drained every temptation to the bitter end. And so He's not less qualified to come to us in an understanding way in our sin. He's more qualified. Whatever sin, Whatever sin you're struggling with, Christ has met it. At its fullest depth. Doesn't mean he's had every experience that we've had, but it means that he understands every sin and he's drained every temptation to the bitter end. And may I just pause here a quick sideline and say, may we find in Jesus always the ultimate counselor. It is folly to think that there's any better marriage counselor than Jesus, the single man. It is folly to think that there is any better counselor for parenting than Jesus, the man who had no children. And we could add there a thousand other things. Chemical dependency. He didn't take illicit drugs. He was not a drunk. But he knows those temptations better than any counselor anywhere. And may we as a church not dip into that idolatry that continues to turn to the world and says, tell us how it is with the heart of man. Go to Jesus. He's got it figured out. He drained every temptation. He's able then to help those who are being tempted. He is. He is able He is sufficient. He is capable to help us know how to deal with the temptations that we face, with the suffering that we enter into in this life. How does the risen Christ help us in our suffering and our temptations? First of all, by propitiation. He ministers to me as the one who satisfied the wrath of God for me. That should allow direct access into my heart. This is the one who died for me. I need to listen to him. Secondly, he does so by intercession. Do we recognize this? He comes alongside of us as the high priest by praying for us at the Father's right hand in all of our temptations and trials. Whatever we're going through, he is there praying for us, Romans 8. And thirdly, by sanctification. He who began a good work in me is bringing it to completion. And that good work is not going to be brought to completion by tapping into the latest ideas that the world has to offer about how to deal with my heart. I'm going to grow in union with Christ, and I'm not going to grow any other way. Period. He is sufficient. We're united with Christ and the transformation that He is working now as we're united with Him. Christ came to renew us and thus to restore true humanity, to purify His people. If you want to know the ultimate goal of this world's efforts to help us through our suffering and our trials, that is going, you, you can find the ultimate goal. Just look in the mirror. What this world wants you to do is love you. And that's it. It doesn't go any deeper. But in union with Jesus Christ, as we come to understand what He has done to save us from our sin, and is doing to sanctify us, and to bring to completion the work that He's begun, it's not me in the mirror. It's His image that I see. And as I'm moving toward that, He grows us and sanctifies us. So believer, in what ways are you battling with sin? Where are you struggling with suffering and trial? What is your besetting sin or list of them? Is it worry? Is it fear? Greed? Pride? Selfishness? Lust? Laziness? The love of self over others? circumstances that have been hard to endure. The list goes on and on, but where are you in that? I ask you then directly, are you battling sin in active dependence upon the help of Christ? not talking about the theoretical help that we kind of know is there. Are you leaning actively on Jesus Christ day by day? And I know I'll be accused, I don't think of anyone here, but I know I'll be accused, oh, there you go, throwing a Bible verse at it again. Just read the Bible more and pray more. I've never found that to be a bad idea. I know it's not a solution to all. But I ask you again, are you battling sin in your identity with Christ, knowing of your union with Him, and working out independence upon him the Christ likeness that he's called you to. He is the counselor. He is the one who's transforming because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. May we never forget it. And for those of you who do not know Christ, you know it, you haven't come to embrace him as your savior. What are your besetting sins? What do you know in your heart of hearts does not please God? I say this respectfully, I hope lovingly, but the truth of the matter is you're on your own. You're on your own to deal with suffering. You're on your own to do what you think is best. It's not really working. And it's not going to work. Eventually, your world will cave in on you. I've said, I say it because I've watched it happen so many times. When you rely upon the world's answers to fall in love with yourself eventually, that crashes one day. When it does, know that there's a Savior. Know that there's a Savior who is able to help those who are being tempted. He's there. You're hearing it. You know it. Remember it. And I would say, don't get there. Come today. Today is the day of salvation. Who is Jesus? Well, as we go back to the beginning... And the theological constructs that try to help this situation out that are imposed upon the Bible to try to get Jesus all straightened out for us but I think the right understanding and right interpretation theologians have called for some time now the hypostatic union it is a simple equation and I ask you to engage your mind and grab this and never let go Jesus is one person with two distinct natures. It's a simple equation to, to remember in rest of our eternity to try to figure out. Jesus is one person. You don't need to think there were two Jesus'es, and you just, you know, sometimes you can see one, and sometimes there was one person, the one who took on flesh, Jesus with two distinct natures. Those natures don't mix together. They don't compromise one another. They are whole and complete. They're not partial. He has a divine nature that everything that God is, Jesus is. He has a human nature. Everything good that man is, Jesus is. One person, two natures, a formula that emerges from and synchronizes with the text of Scripture. We don't need to help Jesus out. We don't need to help the Bible out and and help God not contradict himself. If we just take Hebrews 1 and 2, just in this sample piece, and we take it at face value, this is where it leads. One person, two natures. The Council of Chalcedon said this well. This is a paraphrase, I don't know, be NIV, today's living, I don't know, but it's it's not you're gonna find exactly these words, but I've tried to to beg and borrow and fix it up just a little, but it says this truly God he, Jesus is truly God and truly man, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects, except for sin, 4.15. Recognized in two natures, here it is, so one person in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The difference between the natures being in no way annulled by the union we a, a little tricky language there in the Belgic Confession today, but you could have taken that as the two natures merged into one. That's not what the Belgic Confession is saying, and we have a translation issue there too. But Notice it here, the difference between the natures being in no way annulled by the union. They are truly there in the one person, but neither one is minimized by that union but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and one subsistent being. He is not parted or separated into two persons, but is one and the same Son and Lord Jesus Christ. That's not trivial. That's not useless theological formulation. That is the real Jesus. He is bigger than we comprehend. He is nearer than our experience. He is bigger than we comprehend his divine nature. He is nearer than our experience his human nature. And I don't think we should stand back and just say well these are just doctrinal truths. This is your God, believer. I think we stand in awe and say, wow, amazing. Let us leave this place then rejoicing that we have a great high priest who is uniquely equipped to help us in our struggles with sin, who indeed has paid the penalty and is purifying us from all of our ungodliness. He is God, He is man, and He is merciful and faithful. Eden Baptist Church, let us come to Christ, our glorious Savior. We'll never always get this, we'll never come to full understanding, but we can come to him in awe. For this is who he is. The God-man standing between and providing redemption through his blood. Let us worship. Lord, we know we stand on holy ground. We recognize we cannot comprehend the depths of your wonder. I pray that it would not ever cross our minds again any thought that we can reduce what the Scriptures have said in order to make them make sense to us in our mind as we dictate terms to you and how you need to have done it. But I pray that there would be the grace that is poured out upon this assembly to stand now in awe, in silence, and to say that you alone are God. No greater scheme could be devised, for no greater scheme is possible, and it is utterly essential. We pause here to rejoice in who you are and to lift you up. For those who know not Christ, continue to draw them to the light that they can't see. We pray that you'd take away the blindness and allow them to recognize, first of all, the danger of destruction before your throne as they stand in their own righteousness. And I pray that you'd bring them to trust in Christ crucified and risen. But as we have done that, May we rejoice before your presence in the name of our Savior, the God-man, our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen.